Hello, and welcome to another episode of Chilling with Charlie. Do we have a treat for you today? We're here with Josh, who is a contributor to the 538 website and writes a lot of great analytical NFL content. Stay tuned for more. Running a podcast costs money. Chilling with Charlie is proudly sponsored by Betfair Australia. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. They are not a bookmaker and you can see how they champion data modeling by checking out bit.ly forward slash betfaircharlie, gamble responsibly. I'm here with Josh, who you might know better as Frisco Josh off Twitter. Thank you for joining me today. Absolutely. To start off with, why don't you just tell us a bit about your background? Yeah, sure. So football related background, I think is probably the most relevant. So uh, about three years ago, I uh, decided to get into football analytics uh, pretty deeply. Main motivation at the time was uh, for uh, my own fantasy purposes. I think uh, that's how most people get started. They want to win their personal leagues, make themselves a little bit of extra cash in the the games and hobbies they choose to play. And um, so I went out looking for data and I was able to find a few sources of play-by-play data, which, of course, is what you need to do any serious analysis. And I lucked out upon a couple sources of data that were incomplete, but that pointed me towards the Game Center API that's hosted on uh, NFL.com. Basically, it is the um, the same source of information that Ron Yurko tapped to create NFL Scraper. And within that data source, there were a few fields, a few columns, a few uh, bits of data that were that weren't uh, properly identified. And it turned out they, they were incomplete air yards and complete air yards. And when combined, that gives you air yards. It also had yak. And these were pieces of information that uh, this was data that went all the way back to 2009. And it basically comes from Elias Sports Bureau. Uh, they chart all that and then provide it to the NFL. So in any event, I, um, I found all this. I aggregated it, put it into a Postgres SQL database and... And started to analyze it, and, and and I discovered a few really important things I feel about football that are kind of essential to understanding football and and kind of quantifying h- how these things work. I mean, Bill Walsh is known for a long time um, that the shorter passes, and anyone really, but he was the first to really take advantage of it, that shorter passes are completed at a higher rate than longer passes. But actually quantifying it at each depth of target, something I hadn't seen done before, and I was able to do that. I was able to create some metrics based on depth of target. I was able to see how yak kind of corresponds with depth of target and uh, and that they're inversely related uh, to a large extent, just like catch rate. And so those were important findings. And, uh, um, and really, that was the beginning of my journey along, uh, pardon my dogs, uh, it was the beginning of my journey uh, into football analytics. What got you into analytics? Where did you pick up these skills? I think, uh, boy, well, econometrics in university, first of all. I went to UC Davis and I studied winemaking and economics with a focus on econometrics. So not only was I using math and models for economics, but I also used them extensively when I was after college, when I was uh, involved in winemaking at a winery. Um, and I was the, the head winemaker as well as the president. So I was kind of wearing a bunch of hats. And uh and so anyway, using creating software and using models really helped uh, streamline the process when we didn't have a lot of employees. And uh, so I, I developed my, my skills, my technical skills uh, during that period of four or five years. Also got involved into baseball analytics. Oh, gosh, I want to say around 2008, 2009, 2010. 
Um, one of the databases I created was an injury database was later incorporated into Pakoda, which, uh, Nate Silver made while he was at baseball prospectus. Interestingly, now I work at 538 as a staff writer writing about the NFL and, uh, Nate is my boss. So, uh, pretty interesting how that all worked out. Are there a lot of similarities between the kind of, I guess, tools, techniques you're using with making wine that you use now writing for 538? The tool chains are the same, obviously using R or Stata or whatever it was I was using at the time. Uh, I think I was developing an iOS to a large degree because that's where my apps were living and I needed a mobile platform to do my calculations and run my models. But I think the general idea of, you know, apply statistics and and, and using it in whatever domain uh, that you have expert knowledge, I think is um, a pretty common thing. So really my, I guess where I come from is praxis. I, I take I've taken my knowledge of statistics and I've always applied it in a way that helps me do the things I want to do in a more effective way. And I think that's perhaps where uh, I don't want to say I break from academia, but I certainly I certainly have a, a much greater regard for people who use the tools of statistics to actually solve real world problems that they're experiencing um, that either help them make a better business or help them make better decisions on a day-to-day basis in real life situations uh, than I do about uh, kind of uh, ivory tower stuff. Let's talk about a few of your articles. I guess maybe to start off with, we did an episode earlier with Ron where he talked about binning and certain issues that come across with binning. Mm-hmm. And one of those articles was yours. Maybe just run us through, or I guess the listeners through, when you have a sort of problem and you're approaching it, why did you bin? And what did that enable you to do? I think of the particular situation that Ron discussed in your last episode that was so interesting was that I was looking at the relationship between field position, men in the box, and league yards per carry. There is a strong relationship, no matter how you look at it, when you look at those three variables uh, together. Uh, where, where things break down is when you look at something that is not league yards per carry, for instance, team yards per carry or a particular player's yards per carry using field position and and men of the box. And, and I think the reason for that is that that much, much, much higher variance is, of course, that that uh, there is a lot of noise surrounding yards per carry. It's uh, when, you, when you plot the distribution of a player or a team's rushing attempts, um, you see that it's skewed very, 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 very far. I mean, it's, it's right skewed all the way over there. You get these long runs that skew yards per carry and, and don't give you, and even median doesn't give you a good, really, a really good measure of central tendency. And so the, the whole problem with yards per carry is that a lot of what is built into the, to the metric itself is not attributable to the running back. And so when we look at uh, the metric from the point of view of the runner, uh, we often find, or even the team, we often find that it isn't something that's stable over time uh, or predictive of itself over time. So what we need is this really large sample of runs at a a very, very uh, broad level for us to get any sense of what is actually happening with um, that particular metric. And even when I looked at league-wide yards per carry over just a, a couple years using men in the box and binning by every 10 yards or every five yards, the relationship wasn't, wasn't especially strong. I mean, it was nice. It was something like uh, the R squared was like 0.6. But when you added 10 years or ever, however many years I ended up using, uh, maybe it was just eight, the relationship became exceedingly strong. And I was able to use the model that I created using those, those two variables as a stand-in 
for more kind of conventional ways of creating an overexpected metric. So for instance, if you had a team or uh, a player uh, that faced a disproportionately low number of men in the box over his rushes, we would want to adjust his expected yards per carry down from what it actually was because he was facing uh, or, or yards per, uh, per carry over expected. We should adjust that down. We shouldn't dock him credit for those runs because they were against uh, a defensive front that should allow more yards. And so that was really the impetus for, for creating the model was that instead of doing this large calculation with a large table that said at this position on the field with these number of men in the box, then join to the table this value so that we can subtract it and get an overexpected value. I was able to run it right through a very, very good model that had high fidelity to league average yards per carry and, uh, and save myself those steps. So um, again, my, my argument with, uh, with Ron isn't that he is uh, wrong for disliking the way some people misuse binning and averaging. It's just that he was not fully understanding my, uh, my reasoning and uh, for wanting to use it. So let's talk about your NFL's home and field advantage is real, but why article? So in it, you talk about the Lombardi hypothesis. So maybe just run us through what that is, what you found, and has your opinion changed since the article has been written? No, I haven't seen much evidence to the contrary. Uh, The Lombardi hypothesis is simply that crowd noise will affect uh, the offensive line to uh, a measurable degree, and that that's the reason why uh, home field advantage exists in large degree. I wasn't able to find anything that supports that. And in fact, the folks who wrote papers in scorecasting and, uh, and other uh, academics haven't been able to find any real relationship there between crowd noise. Now, again, I have to stipulate that they looked at punters because that was the only way they could really isolate a single player's performance in a way that they felt appropriate. But my study found that there just wasn't really any, any, any correlation between things like offensive line penalties, holding, false starts, those things, the things you would normally associate with crowd noise on the road. Um, and I wasn't able to find any relationship there. Now, other folks have come out and said, well, well, maybe there's a relationship between uh, blown blocks or something like that. I haven't seen the, the full work and I haven't seen the full studies. I know uh, Sports Info Solutions did a little bit of work on it, but uh, I think the weight of evidence is still on the side of uh, crowd noise is, 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 is really not a great candidate for explaining home field advantage. And we really don't know why home field exa- advantage exists. We don't have a really good candidate for why it, why it actually exists, except for perhaps uh, referee bias. And it seems that that might even be on the wane in recent years. Just a hypothetical, if it's not crowd noise or referee bias, what do you think might be driving home ground advantage? Hmm. Or what would you like to investigate as an exploratory thing? It's a good, that is a good question. I, I honestly, talking to to smart people who've looked at this, um, people like the director of analytics at the NFL, uh, Michael Lopez, he honestly doesn't have a good candidate. And I haven't thought more deeply about it since I wrote the article. Um, so I, I honestly don't have a good answer at this point. Um, you know, maybe it's some mental factor. Perhaps we're not properly accounting for travel. You know, those are things that I, I think people have also looked at and found no effect. Doesn't mean there isn't an effect. They just haven't found one. Um, so I, 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 maybe it's a combination of all the above. 
Um, maybe it's a psychological thing. I, I'm not entirely certain, but I do know when I looked at things like game speed, something we can quantify and measure, uh, home versus road, there really is no, there really is no change. You could look at Thursday night games. You can look at uh, Sunday and Monday night games. Um, really no, really no change in like overall athleticism, overall team speed. So it's not a physical thing per se. So we are things I think we can rule out definitively, but, uh, in terms of who might, uh, what might actually be the causative factor, I do not know. Next article, for a passing league, the NFL still doesn't pass enough. So what do you mean? So how much should teams be passing? What does that depend on? Hmm. All of that. Yeah, I think teams should pass until the uh, marginal uh, effectiveness of passing is equal to the marginal effectiveness of, of running. And, and I think... That does not necessarily mean that the yards gained on the average pass play should be equal to the yards gained on the average run play, just that each additional run or each additional pass is basically equal uh, in terms of added value. And so what does that look like? Well, that's where we're asked. Like, well, what's that? What's the ideal ratio? And I think the problem is we we need to find it empirically. We can't find it kind of theoretically um, team, some teams, some enterprising team needs to actually go out, go out there and trot out there and pass 80% of the time in the season. And then we might see that, uh, you know, running is actually becoming more effective while passing is becoming less efficient. And if we do find that we would know, well, ah, probably the case that the run pass balance is somewhere below 80%. But all we can say for sure right now is that the run pass balance is certainly over what the current uh, league average rates are for running and passing. So empirically, maybe at just a very high level, uh, what are some steps you would go to explore this question as to what is a good rate? Oh, I think how you would look at uh, the, the the effectiveness of each additional run or pass using something like EPA. Um, you, you could even use a, um, a DVOA. I mean, you could use any kind of metric that uh, or win probability might even work if you want to add in time remaining. Um, as a factor. Um, but I think, I think also you should probably uh, control for uh, different state game states. Um, you would probably want to look at open field to start in games where the score is close. So you would want to make all those, uh, th- those necessary adjustments to the data to make sure that you weren't confounding anything. But again, at the end of the day, I think what, what really needs to happen is we need to have a team, team or two or three, gosh, let's, let's, let's go a third of the league. Let's be bold and have them all run an exceedingly high, or excuse me, pass an exceedingly high amount and and see what happens. I mean, if they're still passing for seven or eight yards per pass, if efficiency is still rising at that level of passing, then you would, you would have to say, uh, um, you know, just passing is just strictly and always will be better than running, um, except for certain and key, certain key situations, uh, which the data tends to tell us that uh, in short yardage, it's better to run. Um, on the goal line, it's better to run. Um, it's just those first and second down, those most common plays teams are faced with. It's just so much more advantageous to gain more yards on those plays rather than gain just the minimum amount or be behind the sticks, as they say. Be behind the eight ball so that you're forced to pass on third down or you're forced to pass on second down. You become predictable and the team uh, uh, is much easier uh, much easier for the defense to counter that. Okay, so you're talking about needing to basically run an experiment. I guess what team do you think might actually do this? So what teams do you think are willing to 
give this sort of thing a crack? I don't know yet. Um, um, you know, I talked to I talked to quite a few people who are in analytics positions in the NFL, and uh, they they all have wild ideas, just like I do, um, just like anyone who looks at the data does about how the NFL could be different. But there are structural issues involved here in terms of uh, the people who actually make the on field decisions are not those that are deep in the data that don't have these kind of wild ideas about how the NFL could be different. Um, they came up in a world where uh, running and passing at 50-50 is what team balance actually looks like. And uh, and even people like Bill Walsh bought into that kind of thing. So uh, I, I think uh, what has to happen is an entire new generation of coaches needs to come up that have been exposed to these ideas and are willing to uh, throw the old out and actually embrace something uh, a little crazy. Uh, because at the end of the day, these are people who are putting their entire careers on the line. Uh, they're away from their kids and family uh, an inordinate amount of time. They give up a lot. Um, they probably put, paid their dues for many, many years making uh, below what they probably could have in other industries um, uh, working for NFL teams. So when you finally make it to a position where you have authority and you can make these big decisions about how a team is going to act, and how they're going to uh, achieve a run-pass balance uh, that is optimal, you're probably going to be pretty conservative at that point and probably going to be very uh, sensitive to job security. And the NFL is not an environment conducive to job security. So what's the wackiest idea you've had or you've heard that actually sounds quite plausible to you, that it might actually work? Oh... Running play action on every pass. I think uh, if you said that to a team, you would have a number of a number of, of things that they would say. You, they would counter you with, well, our quarterback isn't good with his back to the defense. It makes him uncomfortable. We can't have him doing that, that often. And uh, so, so that might be one uh, counter to this idea. The other complaint might be that, well, they're going to eventually – I mean, maybe you haven't found that it, it stops being effective, Josh, but eventually it will become ineffective. And uh, and then maybe the last one would be um, uh, that, uh, you know, we need short pass plays. We need these short pass plays and play action is just too long developing. And so we need we need something else in our passing game that isn't just, you know, turn around, take a take a five to seven step drop and pass. We need pop pop pass plays. Um, and, and there's other ways to achieve play action than those longer developing uh, play action passes. So I would I would argue that um, all of the pistol kind of action plays uh, from the pistol where you're you uh, get the ball snapped uh, about uh, five yards deep and then you fake a handoff to the running backs who's positioned to the right or the left of the quarterback um, and then throw a quick pass on a slant or an out quick out. Um, I think that can that can substitute for your quick passing game. The three step drop stuff. So I don't, I don't think it's insurmountable. Um, I think it's wacky in that most teams would kind of laugh at it, but I think it's something that is probably more in the realm of, of being accomplished uh, sooner rather than later, certainly sooner than teams passing 80% of the time. So I guess that would take us to our next article. Can NFL coaches overuse play action? They haven't yet. So was that one of your wacky ideas that, and then you decided to investigate it? It wasn't exactly mine. I think people have found for a long, long time. In fact, I, I think well, it must have been six years ago. Um, there was an article written on Grantland about the play action being the three pointer 
the corner three for the NFL. So this is certainly not something uh, that's original to me. And folks like Ben Baldwin uh, uh, at, at Football Outsiders uh, and also The Athletic has written about extensively. He's investigated it far more than I. Just under what circumstances does play action become ineffective? And the answer is almost never. I mean, there's there are certain situations where it's less effective, but it's almost never the case that it's less effective than a regular pass play and certainly never the case that it's less effective than a run. So I wanted to investigate using the next-gen data from the NFL um, that has XY coordinates uh, at 10 times per second um, at a 10x resolution. I wanted to see how middle linebackers, those tasked with stopping the run on defense, uh, react when a team runs play action multiple, multiple times a game. We have instances of teams running it 15 times in a single game. And, and does it is it the case that as teams run play action to that extent, do, do those linebackers stop moving towards the line of scrimmage? Um, do they stop biting on that play action? Are they less fooled? And it turns out, no, uh, that they continue to be fooled no matter how many times you run play action, or at least within the number of times we have in our sample. And I think the reason for that is simply because they're trained to do that. If you're trained to stop the run at all costs, that's your first job as a middle linebacker and the lineman and the running back make movements that uh, are ingrained into your training and require you to take a step forward or two to address that threat, um, that threat of the run, um, then you'll do it. You'll continue to do it. You always fall back to your training. You don't rise to the occasion. You fail or fall to your training. And their training is to stop the run if these things happen. If they see these things happen, the lineman makes this move, the running back makes this move to the mesh point to the quarterback, then you do these things. You plug this hole. That's your responsibility. And um, if they don't do that, you know, they don't, they don't make the team. So uh, I, th- I think that's uh, the main reason why play action will always and forever be effective is because of the training uh, that coaches give to their linebackers and, and the uh, jobs they're tasked with doing. Next article, why the NFL can't rely on defense. What brought about writing this article and what do you mean they can't just rely on defense? Yeah, so this is a, a notion of what what is important when we're looking at statistical metrics uh, and, and measures of, of team performance and, uh, and what should we, if we were general managers, how should we weight the various aspects uh, of team building? And when you look at how... Uh, the statistics and the performances generated by NFL teams, their stability over time, um, you find that offenses are, are far more stable, far more sticky, far more predictable. Performances by quarterbacks, receivers, um, tight ends, offensive lines are far more predictable than the performances of individual or groups of defenders. And so it follows from that that you would probably – depending on how you're building your team and well, you know, what I mean by depending, I mean, did you have a cheap quarterback? If you have a cheap quarterback, a lot of other things open up uh, for you if he's cheap and good. But if, if you're building a normal team and you're having to pay your quarterback, uh, you know, 15% of your salary cap, 20% of your salary cap, uh, whatever it might be, um, then you're constrained and you should probably invest your scarce resources in things that are fairly predictable or more predictable. Because you don't want to spend a bunch of money on a guy like Namdi Asamoa, uh, like the Eagles did when they built their dream team, who then ended up being absolute garbage. And and really, it is the case that uh, overspending on defense is overspending on uh, a, a huge unknown. 
because the uh, performance year to year of defensive players, even elite ones, is highly, highly variable. Um, and so just the, the whole point of the article was don't invest in highly variable assets, invest in ones that um, have a more stable, uh, predictable outcome. So speaking of investing in assets, another article you've written is the NFL is drafting quarterbacks all wrong. So I guess the first thing is, well, how are they drafting quarterbacks? What's wrong about it? And what should they be doing better? Yeah, the the title is a little um, misleading. I mean, I, so the NFL, I think, is waiting uh, their quarterback evaluations poorly. I think they're overweighting things like arm talent and they're underweighting things like accuracy. And I think one of the hardest things, whether you're an NFL evaluator or a metri- metrics person like myself, is is that the most important characteristic of a successful quarterback is probably between the ears. And how do you get at that in a way that is objective and that your process is repeatable and it isn't just, you know, licking your thumb, putting it in the air and kind of, yeah, this, yeah, he's, he's a good one. Yeah. He's, he, he's a smart kid. Yeah. No, he's a good kid. You know, these kind of, these kind of subjective evaluations have not been over the long run, very successful for the NFL. And so, um, is there any kind of metric that we can create that would maybe get at that uh, idea of football IQ, that mental processing ability that a quarterback needs to have to be successful at a high level at the NFL? Well, and I think the metric I created, uh, Completion percentage overexpected in uh, in college when you adjust for their level of competition and you adjust for depth of target. And uh, if a if a player if a quarterback completes more passes than you would expect, then he probably is very very adept at running the system he's asked to run, which is good because that takes football intelligence. If you understand the system and you run it to a, at a high level, you're inseparable from it as a quarterback. You're basically, they call you the field general. You're on the field. You're actually running and executing the system at a high level. And that, that takes mental processing, takes football IQ. If you're completing passes over expected, it means that you're, and especially at all depths of target, like deep, short, and intermediate. And that means that you're throwing with anticipation, which is another mark of football IQ. Um, otherwise, your deep outs would be intercepted. Otherwise, your deep outs would be incomplete. Otherwise, your deep outs uh, would be throwaways. So I think the metric gets out a lot of what is very difficult to get at with QB uh, evaluation. And, uh, and really, that was the point of the article. I threw it into a model. It turned out, along with six other uh, uh, variables, turned out to be pretty predictive. I think the generalized accuracy of the, of the logistic regression model was something like 70 percent, um, 70 something percent, which is pretty good compared to the NFL's track record, which is basically a coin flip uh, for top uh, QB uh, picks. So that's the gist of that article. I think there's lots more work to do. Um, metrics and models are not the end of the story. Uh, models loved Johnny Manziel's numbers. Uh, they loved his uh, CPOE, his completion percentage over expected, but it didn't account for the fact that he liked to party as much as he did and didn't take his job seriously at the NFL level. So there's lots more that goes into these evaluations than just uh, on-field performance in college. What positions are done well in terms of a drafting sense? So if quarterbacking is not done as well as it can be, uh, what positions do you think are done pretty well? I think defensive backs are, are done very well. I think scouts uh, do a, an admirable job, and I don't think... Why is that? Because I think it's a, it's, it is a position that doesn't lend itself to quantification, first of all. Second of all, the things that you see with your eyes from an athletic standpoint translate 
very well into on-field performance. The ability of a cornerback to have loose hips, the ability of a cornerback to uh, have good makeup speed, the good ability of a quarterback to respond to a double move, the ability of a quarterback to play physical press coverage. All of these things are things you can see, and they're right there on tape, and you can grade them accurately. The problem, of course, is that even the, the guys you grade the very best are, are up and down on a game-to-game basis and a season-to-season basis. There's that variability we discussed earlier. But in terms of identifying talent, NFL evaluators are, are you know, bar none the best at, at, at defensive backs. I think they're also uh, quite good at uh, or some kind of human evaluation um, needs to be done on linemen, although we may make some strides uh, along those lines with the new NFL uh, tracking data. Um, it may be the case that we can make some breakthroughs there um, in kind of quantifying how well, uh, say, a pulling guard does his job. Other than that, I think everything else is best quantified through numbers uh, as a starting point, and then human evaluators should be able to adjust them to some small degree. So Cade Massey is a professor at Wharton and was author with Richard Thaler of a seminal paper about the inefficiencies in the draft market at the NFL level. Um, He also wrote a paper about algorithm aversion, and it's this notion that when people find out that um, an algorithm is flawed, it is, it is imperfect, they no longer trust it. Um, and they found that the only way to kind of overcome this distrust and for people to actually utilize something, even when they're shown that the results from the algorithm are better than human actors, they still distrust it and won't use it. So the only way to overcome that is to allow them to mess with it. So the optimal way to allow them to mess with it is only allow them to mess with it a little. Because every time they mess with it, they make it worse. It's universally the case. And so what you do is you create an objective ranking of players, and then you allow humans to move them a small amount up or down the board. Um, that, that, that amount can't be large because it is almost certain that you are degrading your ability to pick uh, successfully, uh, um, your players. So I think that w- for most other positions, I think that's how I would handle that if I was a GM, but for things like defensive backs and offensive linemen at this time, um, I would completely uh, give that over to the scouts. Can Derek Carr and the Raiders make the most of Antonio Brown? Uh, what do you mean by that? How should he be used? Yeah, it's a good question. It depends is the answer. And I think if Antonio is the same Antonio Brown he's been throughout his career, then they need to pass deep to him quite a bit. And they need to get him involved at the intermediate level where he was absolutely dominating um, for the longest time. But he didn't do a lot of that intermediate route running, especially over the middle over the past two years when Juju Smith-Schuster came on the scene in Pittsburgh. Uh, maybe, Maybe that's because Juju's younger, he's healthier, got a bigger frame. Um, maybe it's because Antonio Brown's been unhappy there and he doesn't want to go over the middle anymore and put his body on the line for a team that he feels doesn't respect him, like him, doesn't like his family, whatever it might be. Business decisions, I think, weigh in. So to the extent that those were business decisions, the extent that uh, Antonio Brown is still willing to go over the middle, then uh, the Raiders should really use him there. To the extent that he isn't or can't do it anymore, then they really need to target him deep. And that's a problem for the Raiders because they don't do that a lot with Derek Carr. And uh, certainly under John Gruden's system, it's a it's a, it's a rhythm, short passing game, uh, West Coast offense that uh, um, I think you can fault him for not calling enough deep plays. Uh, one thing Bill Walsh did was he would call it at least 10 to 20 
deep play as a game, but the checkdowns would be to reasonable areas of the field, right? So you would make your first read, it would be deep. That's your first play for the game. I mean, that's your first read for the for the play. But I think it might be the case that uh, John Gruden either discourages um, Derek Carr from making that pass even when it's there, or he simply doesn't call plays where the deep read is the initial primary read. So I think you have a pretty interesting job, a job that I think a lot of people would like to have. Maybe just run us through what's a typical day like for yourself at being a staff writer at 538? Yeah, so I actually have two jobs. I uh, I have my software company uh, that I'm the co-founder and CEO of, and I'm also a full-time staff writer at 538. So I have I balance those two things each day. They make for long days, but in general with the 538 piece, it, it, it's wonderful. I have, uh, we have a Slack channel. I'm remote there in New York. Um, there's a number of us that are remote, but I'll pitch article ideas to my, uh, sports editor, Jeff, uh, Jeff will either approve or kind of come back with other ideas or tell me something. There's more, something more topical. I, I should probably consider. I'll try and find a way in an angle by using some new kind of uh, innovative research, um, that hasn't been done before. I'll find a way in to utilize that to address the topic at hand. Once I've written it, it'll, I'll go through three levels of editorial. I have my sports editor who will actually edit it for content. Then I have uh, fact check. And after fact check comes a quantitative editor, our PhD on staff, who will go through and check the assumptions and my code. It is talking with folks who have uh, written quite a bit of peer-reviewed our um, uh, papers um, and also written for 538. They say that there's no contest. Uh, the editorial process of 538 is much more rigorous. I've, I've heard some academics tell me that uh, many of their papers aren't even read by anyone. You know, they're just kind of the executive summary written and kind of methods skimmed. So uh, all assumptions are questioned at 538. All code is vetted. Um, we have vigorous debates of whether certain things are appropriate or not. Um, but there's, if there's any question at the end of that debate, we just, we, we spike it. So if it makes it to print, I'm usually pretty confident that uh, what, what, we, what we put out there is, is high quality. Okay, so that's pretty interesting. So you pitch an idea, it goes to your editor. Has there been situations where an article maybe has gone down a different route to what you originally planned? Yeah, I think so. But most of the time, that's driven by forces that have to do with the timeliness of the article. As I began at 538, a lot of my articles were topical, but just a way in from my perspective to talk about a bigger idea. Um, And that's generally the type of article I like to do. So you have uh, the topical aspect of it. So like it might be one of my articles on Todd Gurley. But then I can start talking about where Todd Gurley and rushing fit into the NFL, or I might talk about how O-line play affects uh, rushing performance um, writ large. And those kind of bigger questions I think are more interesting, but you also need to tie it to something, uh, it, uh, you know, specific, uh, specific player, a specific team uh, for it to be interesting in terms of uh, a complete article. So to the extent that uh, my articles have been changed or spiked, it's usually been something where I'm addressing something very, very newsy. Like uh, when I wrote the, the article, the response article after the Super Bowl, there was a lot of editing that went on in that one. And it changed from what I initially thought it would be to something completely different just because 
we wanted to capture more of what my editor wanted into the uh, into the piece than what I had initially envisioned. You also talked about wanting to integrate, I guess, more topical, more up-to-date analytical techniques. How do you keep up-to-date with what's going on being outside of academia and what tips would you give to people who are outside of academia but want to use sort of like the latest tricks? Yeah, I think uh, probably the best place to keep up-to-date and to get good training are places like DataCamp or the our studio folks who do a great job of kind of surfacing new packages uh, that are being created by the community. Many of the vignettes that come with those packages are self-explanatory or at least have enough uh, examples that if you have a, a base understanding of, of statistics that you can, you can utilize them. Um, I really think it's lifelong learning and it's just being curious. Um, most of this stuff is fairly accessible now um, to the extent that anyone understands a neural network beyond the person who initially wrote the algorithm. You know, you can probably understand it too, um, to at least to the extent to be um, dangerous using it. A lot of these uh, machine learning models and, and uh, advanced modeling, they have a, a neat property that you don't actually have to have too many assumptions for your analysis to come out looking uh, reasonable, unlike with, you know, ordinary least squares regression and things like that and multiple linear regression. There's a lot more assumptions that you have to uh, identify and meet and, and account for. Confounders will always be there, but that's something that you are always dealing with and no matter what kind of modeling you do or what kind of analysis you do. So I think that uh, the, the tips and tricks part is really just knowing they exist. Once you know they exist, you can teach yourself what you need to know. Um, you can see how other people are using those tools and see if they apply to your domain or or whatever problem you're trying to solve. What about when it goes to a quantitative editor and fact checker? Like, how does that process work? How much do you have to give them to so they can go away and sort of understand what it is you were trying to do? Literally every statement of fact in my article has to be backed up with a source. So every statement of fact. I mean, if you imagine how many times you say you state something as fact in, in an article or in a conversation or whatever, you can, you, can, you can quickly start to understand just how much effort is involved in, in that type of fact checking. Uh, it can be tedious, but it's absolutely incredibly important. So that part of it is simply find a good source that, will ver- that is a second verification of what you're saying as, as being true. And in terms of the quantitative editor, that's that's a kind of uh, a code review. So quantitative editor is a PhD. She's a, um, uh, Laura. She's incredible. Uh, I can't imagine doing her job. She has to understand so many domains, at least at a surface level, enough to be able to converse with the domain expert who actually wrote the code and is doing the modeling. She's very good at issue spotting, assumptions, bad assumptions, um, misuse of statistical analysis uh, techniques. Um, you have to defend those that you do use that you must have that because they're crucial to your article and you have to defend them in a way that is uh, that makes sense. It's uh, almost like uh, defending a dissertation. So it's rigorous. It's great. Um, I think 538 is probably I think it's the preeminent uh, data uh, journalism uh, site on the Internet by far. But, yeah, no, I, th- I think all that is is healthy. It's good. Uh, but certainly um, if I have to put a negative spin on tedious and difficult as well. So how's that different to, I guess, when you were making wine? So you, you were doing it quantitatively, I assume, and there wouldn't be sort of someone to, I guess, fact check you or check the assumptions of your model. How have you found the difference in processes? 
you can still send off your samples to laboratories uh, and have your assays be double checked. Or you could completely outsource that part of it. And so that you know the assay is, is, is done in a, a repeatable manner and it has small error bars around it. And then you can just build your models um, to use the known good data. So the thing about winemaking is there's probably 10 different variables that are crucial to wine quality, however you want to define wine quality, um, your house style. And so the trick is measuring them. Um, It can be something as much as understanding the fermentation and the thermodynamics of your ferment. So you actually have to have a data logger collecting the temperatures in your fermentation over time. And a lot of people don't do that. And so really a lot of that was just initially getting the data, right? That was the the big challenge for me was first getting all the equipment I needed to measure correctly. Then once I measured, understanding the the errors around those measurements. And then once I have that, collecting enough data over time to be able to correlate it with the type of style or quality that I'm trying to achieve. So that's that's really the problem with uh, that I was trying to solve writ large. First, you need the data, collect it in a, in a repeatable manner that's uh, reliable, do it for long enough that you have enough data to start making some correlations to the things you care about. And I guess being a data journalist, so data journalism's rising a lot nowadays, um, apart from knowing that 538 has all these checks and balances and fact-checking done, how would you recommend someone reading an article, a quantitative article, go about approaching the ideas presented in it for validity, whether statistical techniques are being misused, that sort of thing? I think what I try and do is, as much as possible, publicize the code I used so that anyone who was interested could actually go in and check my work or check and see how I did the things I did. And uh, I don't know if that's validation, but it's certainly peer review. And so I think that peer review is crucial. I think that replication is crucial. I think those things need to happen all the time. I think multiple times. I think the more people that uh, that replicate a result, the better. I think that there's this kind of negative connotation to people who are rediscovering the wheel. Well, no, I think, no, this is just means that yet another person independently trying to answer this question came to the same conclusion. We can be very confident that that's true. Um, and, I, and I celebrate it. And so uh, to the extent that I can, I, I believe in my, my career as software developer, I've always believed in open source. Um, I don't believe that the statistical techniques I use are, inc- are anything incredibly novel. I think that what uh, differentiates, uh, if it's anything, it's just kind of a, a stubbornness that I'll keep looking at a question from different angles until I'm satisfied that uh, I've gotten uh, the result that is probably the most true. So, yeah, no, I think the the answer, the short answer to your question is you just need to publish the code. You need to publish your data whenever you can. Obviously, that's getting harder and harder as uh, sports leagues are. Um, clamping down on use of their data and that the, the new, more novel data is um, can only be used under certain conditions and certainly can't be distributed widely. What's been your favorite NFL piece that went against uh, your intuition? Hmm, that is a good question. I don't know that there's anything that I've written for 538 because if it goes against my intuition, it means that the narrative I was crafting uh, for that article was flawed and then we spike it. So, uh, there is a, there is a selection bias there. On the other hand, in terms of just kind of original research I've done on my own, one of the things that I found that was truly surprising to me 
was that at the, well, actually it wasn't truly surprising, but it was interesting. I found that there is a, I want, I want to say statistically significant relationship uh, or difference, but there, there is a, there is a, a, a reasonably large difference in success at the goal line when you run with power play, power type uh, running plays versus zone. Um, what that means is that you're actually pulling someone from somewhere else and kind of have overwhelming force at the point of attack on the goal line. Now, football people will tell you that, oh, no, you can't do that because then you're leaving the backside open. The defenders are all on the line. They're just going to crash down across the line of scrimmage and they're going to talk to you for a loss. Well, in the NFL, it turns out that those types of power plays where you pull a, a lineman or, or, or a tight end or someone across to attack one particular part of the line uh, of the the defense is actually more successful uh, than zone where you just kind of move laterally along the line and, and let uh, your running back find a cutback. So uh, that was an interesting piece of research I did. I published it on Twitter, I think early last year when I first got my hands on the sports info solutions data, Um, it did pick, it did get picked up by some coaching in some coaching circles. And I thought it was a, an interesting result that I, I did not expect. I expected that the uh, the common commonly held uh, notion of how best to run at the uh, on the line of scrimmage or excuse me on the goal line uh, would prevail. Uh, and in fact, in the NFL, it's like something like seventy uh, thirty. So most of those runs on the on the goal line uh, are in fact a zone, and and a, and a much smaller percentage are are that power type. And I guess just to finish off with, what sort of tips and advice would you give to people listening? who want to be data journalists and, and write online? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know, uh, the answer to that. I, I've been blessed. The, the folks at 538 reached out to me. I didn't even know a job was available. I don't think they ever even published, uh, publicized that there was a job available. So I would, I would say that if you do good work, publish it, uh, get it out there. Don't let good, better be the enemy of good, get it out there, get better at your craft, uh, publish your code. Build something. Build something that helps you and, and, and hopefully will help others. Share. Share your data. Share your code. Make friends with other people who are doing interesting work. Uh, bounce ideas off them. Replicate other people's research. Uh, the more helpful you can be, the more helpful people will be to you, I think, is, is, is basically how, it's, how it all shakes out in the end. Uh, who, who ultimately recommended me to 538 is, is a person I've never met, uh, that I've never even spoken to, I've never interacted with. So, uh, yeah, I, I, it's a case where it isn't who, you know, sometimes it's, uh, um, it's just, you know, people spotting you doing, uh, doing the work. Thank you very much for your time today. I really enjoyed this chat and I hope you did too. I really did. I enjoyed it. Uh, and, uh, this is a great program. I hope more people listen to it. Uh-huh.